We're continuing our series today in the Gospel of Luke uh, with the theme, Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. The message today is eternal wealth, and we're going to be focusing on Luke chapter 16 and the first 15 verses. So if you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to go ahead and make your way there, and we'll read the scripture together here in just a moment. There's no doubt about it that extreme wealth is intriguing to most everybody. I looked at a list recently of the top five richest people in the world. Uh, Jeff Bezos comes in at number one with Amazon at $177 billion in net worth. Elon Musk with Tesla is worth $151 billion. Bernard Arnault, uh, of Christian Dior is worth $150 billion. Bill Gates with Microsoft is at $124 billion. And then Mark Zuckerberg comes in with Facebook at a measly $97 billion in net worth. No doubt about it. We prioritize material things in our culture. of people say that being successful in their career is very important. Dr. Ryan Howe wrote in Psychology Today, and he said the belief that material possessions improve individuals' personal and social well-being permeates society. However, contrary to this belief, multiple studies show that materialists, compared to non-materialists, have lower social and personal well-being, compulsive and impulsive spending, Increased debt, depression, social anxiety, decreased subjective well-being, and so on are desirable, undesirable outcomes that have been linked with materialistic values and purchasing behaviors. Now, here's where the real-life challenge comes for us all, regardless of how much we do or don't have. We need things for the basic needs of life. And in balancing those things, we know that they can provide margin. We know that they can provide some things that are enjoyable in life. But the danger is, and the balance that we're trying to strike is, are we living to pursue things that are not of eternal value? Or do we see the things that have been entrusted to us as tools to be used for the glory of God? And it's important that we have a healthy perspective on stewardship. So my hope today is for those of you who are faithful disciples in this area, you see the need and the importance of investing your life, every aspect of it, uh, for the Lord and being faithful with it. My prayer is that this message would be a reinforcement and an encouragement to you. And if you're not that far along yet, Uh, in your journey of stewardship and your journey of faithfulness to the Lord, I hope that it would be a challenge to you to provide some framework on how to live the life that God is calling you to. The parable before us in Luke chapter 16 is admittedly one of the most difficult. It's the parable of the unrighteous steward. Some have referred to it as the most difficult parable of all because it seems to praise someone who in our eyes would be a scoundrel. 
Jesus does ultimately call the man unrighteous, condemns what he did wrong, but he also teaches a lesson on how to use what's been entrusted to us to prepare eternal wealth. And that would be what we're going to focus on as we look at this passage of scripture together. And I begin reading in Luke chapter 16 and verse one. Here's what the word of God says. Now he said to the disciples, there was a rich man who received an accusation that his manager was squandering his possessions. So he called the manager in and asked, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you can no longer be my manager. Then the manager said to himself, what will I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig. I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do so that when I'm removed from management, people will welcome me into their homes. So he summoned each one of his master's debtors. How much do you owe my master? He asked the first one. A hundred measures of olive oil, he said. Take your invoice, he told him. Sit down quickly and write 50. Next, he asked another, how much do you owe? A hundred measures of wheat, he said. Take your invoice, he told him, and write 80. The master praised the unrighteous manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the children of this age are more shrewd than the children of light in dealing with their own people. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of worldly wealth, so that when it fails, they may welcome you into eternal dwellings. Whoever is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. And whoever is unrighteous in very little is also unrighteous in much. So if you've not been faithful with worldly wealth, who will trust you with what is genuine? And if you've not been faithful with what belongs to someone else, who will give you what is your own? No servant can serve two masters since either he will hate one and love the other or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Now verse 14. The Pharisees who were lovers of money were listening to all these things and scoffing at him. And he told them, you are the ones who justify yourselves in the sight of others, but God knows your hearts. For what is highly admired by people is revolting in God's sight. So we have a rich man who calls his manager to give an account of his dealings. He heard that the manager was not handling the rich man's finances wisely. A manager would have been hired to manage the finances of an estate, much like a modern-day financial planner, but also with even more responsibilities for the day-to-day. The manager who was doing this and had been given that responsibility was wasting what had been entrusted to him, much like the prodigal son in the previous parable. At first, the rich man viewed the manager as irresponsible rather than dishonest, and he was fired. But then, in order to make friends with people who might hire him later, the ex-manager charged the rich man's two debtors less than what they actually owed him. And he states plainly why he did this. When I lose my job here, these people will welcome me in. 
The rich man hears what took place and he commends the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. He had not done a good thing, but he had been careful to plan ahead and to use material things to secure his future. Now make note here, Jesus was not teaching that his disciples should be dishonest. Rather, he was teaching that his disciples should use what has been entrusted to them materially in order to make a spiritual investment. And what we have in front of us is a good lesson from a bad example. One commentator said God can use evil things that we're familiar with to illustrate a familiar particular point without praising the thing itself. The word stewardship comes from a word that means to manage a household, just as a man is in this example. A person doesn't own the household, but he simply cares for it on behalf of another. And stewards in the ancient world would have had broad responsibilities, whether it was making sure that somebody cleaned the floors or that the finances were properly cared for or that the public face of the household uh, was handled properly. And they were to make sure that what the owner had given to them to utilize was used well. We are not the owners of anything that we have, but we are called to care for everything God has entrusted to us. So that extends to creation, the world God's put us in. We should be good managers of that. We ought to use the resources the Lord has given us. It includes our gifts and our talents, the money and the financial resources, our time, and ultimately and most importantly, it includes the gospel. As these things come together collectively, they present a picture of what kind of stewards we are and what kind of lives we're living and how faithful and effective we are in the kingdom of God. So I want to show you in these few moments that we have together three stewardship principles that I think will be helpful for us to have a framework and a guide for our own stewardship of life. The first stewardship principle is that God is the owner of all resources. Now we know this from the scripture. We know this intuitively. We know that what we have did not come from us. But this is truly foundational as we live our lives. The owner in the parable is described as a rich man. He's running everything. But this key principle that we find, if we understand it, will significantly shape how we live. C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity wrote, Every faculty you have, every power of thinking or of moving your limbs from moment to moment, has been given to you by God. Then he says this, if you devoted every moment of your whole life exclusively in service to God, you could not give him anything that was not, in a sense, already his own. Psalm 24 says, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. For he founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. The apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, you are not your own. You were bought with a price. There is not a single thing in creation that God could look at and say, 
I wish that was mine. Or I need that. Or if I could only get that, then it would increase my holdings. That's not how it works because it all belongs to him. You might be familiar with the story of Achan in the Old Testament in the book of Joshua. Achan was an Israelite who fought uh, with Joshua and God commanded the Israelites that they were to destroy the city of Jericho because of its great sin. Only Rahab the harlot and her household were spared because she had hidden the Israelite spies. God commanded the Israelites to take nothing from Jericho because everything was accursed. Further, he warned them that if they took anything, that the whole camp of Israel would be subjected to trouble and destruction under the hand of God. When the walls of Jericho came tumbling down, Achan spots in the ruins a beautiful robe, 200 shekels of silver, and a wedge of gold weighing 50 shekels. He coveted them in his heart, and it caused him to take them, and he hid them in the ground under his tent. Israel then lost a battle. God told Joshua that Israel had lost the battle because somebody had taken something out of Jericho that they weren't supposed to take. The next morning, Israel has to present themselves before the Lord, and they present themselves before the Lord tribe by tribe. Achan confessed his sin, and when he did, he and his entire family were judged in that moment and were stoned to death. They were killed. And you say, that is a harsh penalty. Why was Achan subjected to such a strong penalty? He was subjected to such a strong penalty because, number one, God takes sin seriously And all of us would be subjected to the penalty of death were it not for Jesus Christ standing in our place. But further, he stole from God himself. As creator and owner, God doesn't need anything. He alone is self-sufficient and self-existent and omnipotent. But failure as a steward begins with a failure to understand that God is the owner of all all of the resources. And if we'll get that foundational principle in mind and in heart, then it will help propel us forward to a life of faithfulness as we do the work of God in the world. Stewardship principle number two, we are managers of the resources God entrusts to us. There's a contrast in verse 10 between the one who is faithful and the one who is unrighteous. Jesus is saying, do not be unrighteous as the steward in the parable was, but be a faithful steward. This manager positioned himself to benefit in the future with his actions, and the owner noted that he had acted shrewdly in doing so. He had not done a good thing, but he had, in fact, planned for the future. There's a lot of debate about this particular passage as to whether or not what the manager did was actually illegal Some have argued that the owner had violated the Jewish law against charging interest and that the steward was rectifying the situation. Others say that the manager was just giving up his own commission on the sales. Others say that he was outright stealing. That's not ultimately the point of the parable. 
because whatever he was doing, he was not acting in the best interest of the owner. But even though the owner had lost a lot of money on what he did, he had to praise the manager for his shrewdness. Now we, in the same way, are managers of what God entrusts to us. We're to be good stewards of our time, our talents, our treasures for the glory of God. So a life of stewardship is understanding that everything you have is to be managed. Sometimes we think about it only in terms of financial resources. That's only one aspect of it. Every facet of your life is to be invested for the purposes of God and for his glory in your life. There's a man by the name of Stephen McSwain who wrote the giving myths. Uh, He worked with Cargill Associates for years, which is a a stewardship firm uh, that works with churches and uh, nonprofits. And he talked in that about how at the very heart of the Christian faith is this idea of giving. That's an important concept for us because after all, God is the greatest giver of all. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. John chapter 3 and verse 16 is a reminder to us that the greatest gift that has ever been given is the gift of Jesus. That's good news for sinners because it says to us that what we could not do on our own, God did for us. That Jesus was willing to come to this earth and live a perfect life and to fulfill the law of God. He was willing to die on the cross in our place so that we could be forgiven. He was buried and he was raised. In this gift, we receive the greatest gift that has ever been given by faith. And then in turn, we live according to the grace that God has extended to us. If you want to find your life, learn how to give your life away. Learn how to follow God in being the greatest giver of all. Now, McSwain, that I noted, uh, who worked with this stewardship firm, went on to say that in every denomination, in every context in America that he worked with, what he found out was that giving in the modern era is in trouble. There was an old rule that 80% of resources in churches were given by 20% of the church's membership. He said today that number is closer to 90%. 10. Additionally, only 5% of churchgoers tithe. That's one out of 20. The average amount that Christians give, this is churchgoers, is 2 to 3% of their annual resources. Now, here's a metric that might be interesting to you, and it also hopefully would be a word of encouragement to our church. The average weekly giving amount per person in churches is $17 a week. Anybody who looks at church health says that a church ought to be in the, around the $35 range in order to be considered healthy uh, financially, whatever that means. The Cross Lanes Baptist Church metric is at $55 per week per person. That is 350% more than the average. It's well over half again what we would consider to be healthy. And it's a testimony to the fact that there are some faithful 
core givers in the life of this church. And before you think, well, it's because there are people who have a lot of resources. It's not the only reason, because the issue is not how much you have. The issue is what do you do with what's been given to you? So whether it's the widow's might, or it's a person who would in fact be considered a wealthy person, the measure is, are you generous in what the Lord has blessed you with? There's this misnomer that, that wealthy people give. You know who gives? Generous people give. They might be wealthy, they might not be wealthy, but they're generous. And the Lord sees every bit of it. And the average church engages about 45% of its adult and student population in some sort of serving role. I don't have the current statistics, but I can tell you that our number has been measurably higher than that historically, including the number of people who give of themselves and of their talents in serving the church. I'm convinced that people who want to honor God and live their lives as givers in the totality of life, when they're discipled properly and understand a scripture passage like what is even before us today, and when they're presented with a vision that is greater than themselves, they're going to be compelled to a higher measure of faithfulness. Nobody wants to give to a budget, but everybody who's a giver wants to give to a vision. And in giving to that vision, we're seeing that we're doing something that is greater than ourselves, and we're following God, who is the greatest giver of all. Luke chapter 6 and verse 30 says, Give to everyone who asks of you, love your enemies, do good and lend, hoping nothing in return, and your reward will be great. Verse 35, For he is kind to the unthankful and to the evil. So here's this almost opposite world of principle than what the culture would tell you to do. You give to those who ask. You help those who can't pay you back. You are a blessing to those who seemingly don't deserve it. You give mercy to people who might wrong you. You treat other people the way that you want to be treated. And when you do so, you're following your heavenly father's example out of obedience and out of joy because you want to be like him. I want to share a few other thoughts with you along the lines of this generosity of multiplication. Our Southern Baptist family of churches, through the work of the International Mission Board, recently passed an incredible milestone. In the history of the Lottie Moon Christmas offering for international missions, Southern Baptists have given collectively now over $5 billion. That's not counting giving through the cooperative program. Today happens to be Cooperative Program Sunday, where it's a celebration and a reminder of what we can do together, which is more than what we can do on our own. But the work of the International Mission Board has equipped over that time frame more than 25,000 missionaries to serve in 189 countries, representing collectively 228,000 years of gospel service. And there will be countless numbers of people around the throne of God someday because of the faithful giving of his people. But we're reminded that today there are even still more than 7,000 unreached people groups in the world. People that don't have a replicating 
gospel witness in their midst. And this is the mission of the church, that people would know that God loves them, that there's good news for them, that their sins can be forgiven, their eternity can be secure. And we want to be a part of pushing that mission forward. Now, it's a little bit difficult at times when we think at a macro level like that to really see the impact that we're making personally. When we're thinking collectively, it's a little bit more difficult. So I want to give you some uh, smaller numbers as well that apply to us as a church that are equally as remarkable. We did a mission reset in this church not quite two decades ago. As a church, since that mission reset, you have contributed more than four and a half million dollars to the mission of God, directly to missions. I'm not talking about the collective receipts of this church. I'm talking things that we would say are specifically focused on the mission. Additionally, you have partnered directly to plant 24 new churches in seven states and five nations, a movement of multiplication. This year alone, over $330,000 will go toward missions, including our work with the International Mission Board and the North American Mission Board, along with active mission partnerships that we're engaged in right now in five states and five nations. That's not including all that broader work that we're investing in as well. So here's what it comes down to for all of us. A manager is called to be faithful. It's required of a steward that you be found faithful. That's the measure. What somebody else is doing is not the measure. How much you do or don't have is not the measure. The measure is simple. Are you being faithful with what the Lord has entrusted to you? A manager is to give as the Lord has prospered. That's the New Testament principle, 1 Corinthians 16 and verse 2. So yes, to whom much is given, much is required. If the Lord prospers us greatly, then that is a measure of how our faithfulness should look. And a manager is to give cheerfully what they have purposed in their heart to give. 2 Corinthians 9 and verse 7. God loves a cheerful giver. So I want you to know that when you joyfully invest in the work of God, when you give of your time, you invest your talents, you invest your resources, and you do it with a joyful heart, God is honored, and he is pleased with that, and he will bless your faithfulness for his kingdom purposes. Principle number three, as managers, each of us will give an account of how we have managed the resources God entrusts to us. Now, any good manager for a business knows that eventually the owner's going to check the books. Eventually, the person who is the owner of all of it, he's going to look in and he's going to see how things are going. So this issue of accountability and stewardship is a big one. Each of us should ask, am I managing the resources God has entrusted to me with a view toward giving an account to God as the owner? Am I investing toward glorifying God among the nations. Now, there's something interesting in this parable I want to draw your attention to. Jesus contrasts a very little thing with much in verse 10. 
unrighteous mammon with true riches in verse 11, and that which is another's with that which is your own in verse 12. The very little thing, the unrighteous thing, and that which is another's all refer to temporal resources or to money. Now, we've already seen it all belongs to God, but much and true riches refers to that which is laid up in heaven, which are eternal treasures. And Jesus indicates that the faithful steward will provide true riches in eternity in contrast with the unrighteous steward who would provide himself only with temporal provisions. And the irony here is that God views money as a very little thing, ultimately, but it is a very big thing in terms of its being used as a test to see if we can handle eternal riches. That's why Jesus said, don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust will destroy and where thieves will break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust won't destroy and thieves won't break in and steal. And then here's what he said, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. If we are faithful with what God, the owner, entrusts to us, we will have eternal rewards in heaven, regardless of how much the measure was of our earthly possessions. And Jesus says in verse 12, and if you have not been faithful with what belongs to someone else, who will give you what is your own? None of us are going to take anything with us to heaven, but we can send it on ahead. Now let's look again at verse 13 and I'm going to close. No servant can serve two masters since either he will hate one and love the other or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Let me give some practical application to kind of bring these thoughts together. The first part of the practical application is you need to choose who and what you will serve. The two masters are mutually exclusive. If you determine that you love money, it will inevitably drive you away from God. But if you determine that you love God and you want to use money that he's entrusted to you, then it won't be a primary concern of your life. You'll be focused on using the best what God has given you. Choose who and what you will serve. Second part of application is make the most of your opportunity. The Pharisees who loved money reacted poorly to Jesus' teaching about it. They basically sneered at Jesus. Now, I've been at this a long time, and I learned something a long time ago. That in talking about stewardship, and money specifically, that the people who kick up the most dust when the pastor does that, are the people who are not confident about their faithfulness and stewardship. Because people who are givers of themselves and they're givers of their resources, they're all over a message like this. And they're thinking, that's exactly what I've been thinking all these years. That's why I'm giving of my time. That's why I'm faithful with my financial resources. Let's push that mission forward. Let's plant more churches. Let's see more 
children ministered to so that they grow in their faith in the church. Let's see more hungry people fed in this community. Let's see the mission of God go forward. And people who are givers, they rejoice in a message like this because it speaks to their heart in something that they've come well to understand spiritually. But the folks that get really uncomfortable about it might just be like this example in the scripture, trying to justify themselves, but ultimately it's going to be God who will judge all people, not me. And verse 15 says, what is highly admired by people. Man, this is a hard verse. It's revolting in God's sight. Could you imagine that we could chase after things in life that people value, that people think are really important, and that's what we condition our kids to chase after, and that's what we think is important, and we get to the end of the whole deal and we found out it was revolting to God? God, help us that that not be the case. Make the most of your opportunity, and then... Do it to invest in eternity. Invest in eternity. The unrighteous steward got it right and the sons of light got it wrong. Sometimes unbelievers are more shrewd in figuring out how to secure temporal wealth than believers are in figuring out how to secure eternal riches. But at the end of it all, we want to be found faithful. And I say this to you in closing. It's my desire as your pastor and it's our desire as a church that we always disciple people rather than ever trying to guilt people to do anything. And here's the reason why. If you can guilt them to do it, there'll be something else that'll distract them and keep them from doing it eventually. It is a wrong motive. It's a wrong approach. But if, in fact, we can present to you the picture of what a disciple should be from the Word, not from our opinion and we trust the Holy Spirit to stir that up in your heart, that's going to get you further because you're going to grow and you're going to be more like Christ. And that's why we don't try to put pressure on people or stir guilt or anything else. We just simply say, this is the life Jesus is calling us to. And if you'll step into the life that Jesus is calling you to, you'll find eternal purpose You'll invest in something that's far greater than yourself. And when you get to heaven, you'll see that the Lord was pleased. Friends, it's all of grace. We can't do any of it on our own. It's all by God's grace. But let's step into that grace and let's be faithful with what he's entrusted to us. Let's bow our heads together just for a moment as we pray and come toward the close of the service. If you're one of those folks I was talking about uh, and you know that you're faithful in this area and the Lord's shaping you and he's growing you, would you take just a moment and say thank you to God for his grace in your life? Thank him for the blessings that he's entrusted to you. Ask him to help you to continue to deepen in your discipleship of what stewardship is all about. Maybe you're one of those folks that's not as far along as you, you know you need to be and you really want to be. The Lord can meet you where you are. He'll encourage you. He'll help you. But you've got to be available. You've you got to surrender yourself to the Lord and say, Lord, I want to be used. 
for your glory, for the sake of the name of Jesus. Maybe there's somebody here today who doesn't have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. You say, Pastor, what does it mean to be saved? Here's what it means. It means to recognize that God is a holy God and that we are sinful people. It means to realize there's no way back to God on your own. There's no forgiveness to be had on your own. There's no eternal life to be had on your own. But God has done everything that needed to be done through his son, Jesus Christ. And today, if you would be willing to repent of your sin and look to Jesus in faith, God will save your soul. You say, well, there's a lot I don't know. Well, there's a lot all of us don't know. But this gospel is as plain and as clear as it can be, so plain and clear that even a little child can understand it. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. Would you trust in him today? Father, we thank you today for the faithfulness of your good hand to provide for us what we need. Help us to not to get caught up in the things that ultimately are going to be disgusting to you, but help us to see things in a proper eternal perspective. And whether we have little or we have much, our prayer collectively would be help us to be faithful. You're the one that has given us these gifts. May we use them well. I want to thank you for the faithfulness of this church and the many sacrificial people here who give first of themselves and then of their resources. We could do nothing that we're doing apart from that. And Lord, you've blessed us. And I pray you would continue to grow that number, develop us as we serve you, and as we exalt Jesus in all that we do. And we ask it in his name. Amen.